If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence. If you went on a road trip and you didn't stop for a Big Mac or drop a crispy fry between the car seats or use your McDonald's bag as a placemat, then that wasn't a road trip. It was just a really long drive. At participating McDonald's. Hello and welcome to the BBC History Magazine weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, editor of the magazine, and this is the last of our October 2011 editions. And remember, BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and on subscription. Visit our website, historyextra.com, for more information, or follow us, twitter.com slash historyextra, or facebook.com slash historyextra. Coming up this week... He was a king who liked to have his cake and eat it. That was Mark Ormerod on King Edward III of England. The really interesting aspect about this battle is it was was celebrated in England, but it was also celebrated in France, and it was celebrated in America, who were supporting the French cause. That was Sam Willis on the Battle of the Glorious First of June. York University's Professor Mark Ormerod has just completed his biography of the long-lived monarch Edward III as part of the Yale English Monarchs series. I met up with him to talk about Edward, who was King of England from 1327 to 1377, and also Lord of Ireland, Duke of Aquitaine and claimant to the throne of France. Edward was King of England from 1327 to 77, uh, but he also claimed the throne of France. So why was that? Why did he make a claim to the throne of France? In 1328, there was a succession crisis uh, in, in France. Uh, no immediate male heir available to, uh, to, to the throne. And 
um, Edward III uh, uh, of, of England, who had just come to the throne of England uh, himself as a, as a boy of, of, of 14 years, had some kind of a claim to the, the, the succession to that, to that throne. Edward's mother, Isabella of France, was the only sister of the last king of the Capetian line who died in 1328. And she claimed that she had the right to transmit the uh, claim to the throne uh, to her son. Now, there's, there's big complication around this because um, a lot of historians for many years have thought that in 1328, the French had already very firmly and consciously adopted the so-called Salic law, the law that says that succession cannot pass through a woman, through the female line, and that therefore Edward was automatically barred as a consequence of that. This isn't actually true. Edward actually had a perfectly sustainable claim to his uncle's throne, the, 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 the throne of France. But the French were very pragmatic about this. In several previous uh, occasions, they had looked at the range of people available and gone, as it were, for not the next in line, but the nearest adult male available. Edward was, as I say, only 14 when he became King of England. He was uh, still only 15 when the, the, the French throne fell vacant. The French had no particular desire for a King of England to become King of France anyway, and they went for a cousin of the, of the previous King in the person of Philip VI, who had already been playing a very prominent role in the politics of France over the previous decade or so, was well known by everyone. Uh, um, it was well understood that he would make a good, effective King. He was a strong character. He was fully in control of his regime and so on. So it made every sense that he should, he should become king. Uh, Edward, Edward does not at that point um, say, oh, all right, then, well, well if Philip VI is, is now the legitimate king of France, then my claim to that throne is, in effect, nullified. He did not do that. He reserved the claim to himself. And ten years later, when war broke out between England and France uh, over um, the perennial disputes that the English and French had in this period over the status of the Duchy of Aquitaine, English-held territory but within the Kingdom of France, uh, Edward III was quick to revive this notion that uh, that he had a legitimate and sustainable claim to the throne of France, um, uh, which, on which he built uh, as a means of, of developing a network of allies within the Kingdom of France itself for that war against Philip VI. So the Hundred Years' War begins in 1337 in this clash between Edward III and, and Philip VI over the Duchy of Aquitaine with a new element brought in here that Edward is now going to challenge Philip's very right to rule within the Kingdom of France at large. And three years later in 1340, that's precisely what Edward 
Edward III did. He, he, he publicly declared himself King of France and England, as he called himself on the continent, King of England and France, as he called himself at home uh, in, in England. He, um, he quartered the royal arms so that the, the leopards of England sat alongside the fleur-de-lis of France, and to all intents and purposes he had actually united the, the two kingdoms uh, under, his, under his control. Um, now, this is not to say that, that any, anybody at the time believed that Edward could really make himself King of France, that, that he, he had the authority, um, uh, either the moral authority or the, um, or the political apparatus to be able to establish himself as the real ruler of France. But of course it gave him huge diplomatic leverage. Being able to counter the claim of the man who sat on the throne of France and, and suggest that he has no real right there and that you are the true king is a fantastic way of undermining the moral and political authority of your enemy. And that was the strategy that Edward played on very, very emphatically um, for the next 20 years. But did Edward, do, do you think, as a man who's, who studied it, do you think Edward believed that he could be, should be the king, or was this just real politic and he was just making the best of the situation as he saw it? I think that uh, Edward III lived for a very long time. Uh, lots and lots of things happened. Um, the, the, the war that began in 1337 went on for 23 years um, and, until a peace was established in 1360 and then broke out again in 1369, so the, uh, another six years of war there, thereafter. Over, over periods of time like that, you expect to see diplomatic strategy change. You don't expect one particular um, strategy to be pursued constantly through that period because what effective rulers in the Middle Ages did, as, as in, in all periods, is adjust their war aims to reflect uh, the, the reality on the ground at any particular time. Now, the thing that really transformed things, so far as Edward III was concerned, was the Battle of Cressy of 1346. Mm. After a miserable first decade to the war, it, it really did not go at all well for, for Edward uh, over, the, over the first years of the, of the war, and a lot of discontent at home about, about that as well. In 1346, he won this fantastic victory uh, against uh, against Philip VI of, of France. And this, this transformed his reputation internationally. It uh, led people to believe that Edward was capable of winning this war and in some way perhaps there, thereby making himself King of France. His subjects in England also started to believe this. And we need to remember that they are a very, very important force within this, within this process. So I think that in the decade after um, uh, the Battle of Cressy, Edward began to fantasise about the idea that he actually could be King of France one day, and that even if that, sh that couldn't be brought to uh, a full realisation, that it was absolutely imperative that he should hold on to that claim and pass it on uncompromised to his son and his heirs in the future. This is where his, his 
family policy, I think, begins to show through as we move into the 1350s and 1360s, where Edward is increasingly preoccupied with the the, the, the rights that his sons are going to inherit from him and his desire to create um, very effective lordships for, for, all, of his, for all of his sons to, to inherit from him. Okay, and that, that's, that seems to me to be a really interesting topic, and that's the one that you're going to be writing for the magazine, one of the themes that's coming out of your book that you're going to take, a, take an in-depth look at for the magazine. So, what was Edward's strategy here then? Was you, I think you've, you've called him a family man, haven't you? So what, what, what do you mean by that? What was he trying to do? Well, I think that increasingly as Edward moved from his youth into his mature years, he became really quite preoccupied by the... Uh, I'll start that one again. As Edward moved from youth into his maturity, he became increasingly occupied with how he might deploy... Uh, his own family as, if you like, the managers of a, of a great confederation of Plantagenet states. Edward was a traditionalist. He, he looked backwards rather than forwards in terms of his models of, of rule and his, and his notions of empire. He wasn't particularly interested in building up some great centralised bureaucratic machine um, that would run uh, a great empire stretching across the British Isles and, and, and considerable parts of France from a, a central base at, at Westminster. He thought much more in terms of the ways that great rulers like William the Conqueror and Henry II had done, that what you do is you, you use the family. You deploy the members of your family as your subsidiary rulers within the territories of this, this empire in a devolved kind of structure where they are given significant amounts of power and uh, allowed to rule uh, in their own right as the representatives of their father, the King of England. Edward III had, had seven sons altogether. Two of them died as, as little boys, but five grew to maturity. Edward, Lionel, John, Edmund and Thomas. Any king in the Middle Ages with five healthy sons is faced with the challenge of quite how to use them, how to channel the uh, the uh, the energy and ambition of all of those sons uh, into the service of the crown. And Edward's vision emerging in the 1340s and 1350s is very much about placing each of those sons in a discrete part of his of his empire uh, where they where they might rule uh, on his behalf. So the Black Prince, the eldest son, Edward of Woodstock, who was uh, already, um, uh, as, a, uh, as a young man, made uh, uh, Prince of Wales, um, was also then in the 1360s made Prince of Aquitaine and sent to Bordeaux to um, set up um, a, a resident regime um, ruling the Duchy of Aquitaine for the, for the king. The second son, Lionel, was from an early age destined to take over the rule of Ireland and was given the lieutenancy of Ireland in the 1360s. 
For the third son, John of Gaunt, a number of ideas were floated and for a long time through the uh, 1350s and on into the early 1360s there was a, a real consideration that John of Gaunt might be named as heir to the throne of Scotland. Scotland we remember of course as an independent kingdom in this period and Scotland is at war with England for much of the period but Edward III's uh, brother-in-law, David II of Scotland, was inclined at various points he had no children of his own and he was inclined to think that John of Gaunt might be named as as his heir when that didn't happen Edward III turned everything around in order to allow John of Gaunt to pursue dynastic ambitions in the kingdom of Castile we can see here how there's an enormous kind of geographical range to this to this imperial dream and it's easy to, to dismiss it as, as unrealistic. On the other hand, I think we, we need to remember that the sons were extraordinarily loyal to their father. Um, even the two, the two youngest, Edmund and um, Thomas, for whom uh, rather less provision was being made during, during this period, and certainly um, comparatively little coming to fruition for them, remain firmly loyal to their father's cause, and there's no sense of defection from that family firm so long as Edward III lives. It's a remarkable achievement in the Middle Ages for a king to survive as long as Edward III did, and have all five of his adult sons firmly uh, uh, behind him in everything that he did. So what was that loyalty predicated on? Why, why were sons so in tune with, with Edward's ideas? I think primarily because they were invested in the regime, because they had, um, uh, it was in their interests very much to be part of this, of this loyal regime. Um, they're all, to, to, to a degree, um, uh, effective uh, soldiers. They're brought up within a, within a very militarised kind of culture and they see war as part of their destiny. They're all signed up as teenagers to active participation in the king's wars and they uh, lead a whole series of campaigns campaigns uh, um, right, right across the British Isles and, and, and France and, and into Spain um, while Edward himself is, is still alive. So being, being part of a machine which, which itself has become conditioned to, um, to war as a, as a long-term entity, not necessarily as an end in itself, but certainly a long-term commitment is very much part of this. I think there is also though, a very, very strong pull from the father. I think that, I think that Edward exerted a great deal of, of moral control over his children. And this really stemmed back to his own childhood experience and the, the sense of foreboding uh, that he had that when the royal family does collapse, if the royal family becomes a dysfunctional unit, then that simply results in, in faction and anarchy. And the politics of the 1320s, the very, very difficult circumstances in which Edward III had found himself before he came to the throne as a, as a, as a young boy and as an early teenager, had really imprinted themselves up, up, upon his mind and made him absolutely determined that he should hold his own family together. And he does that uh, by, by, um, by 
being a good father, being a very, very generous lord to his, to his sons and fulfilling the medieval paradigm of the generous, magnificent king who bestows honour and favour on those who do him service. And, and a degree, I think, as I say, of, of moral pressure being applied there, that it was what princes do is that they honour their father. Princes, above all, should be signed up to the royal enterprise. So was this, this, this family strategy, was this one of the reasons why Edward pursued the Hundred Years' War or his section of the Hundred Years' War for as long as he did? Why, why, why it carried on for, what do you say, 23 years until... Um, uh, was it Bressini, Treaty of Bressini, was it? Yes. I, yes, I think, um, I think for me, this is, this is one of the, the, the principal reasons why the Hundred Years' War becomes a Hundred Years' War. Nobody who was fighting for uh, England or France in the 1340s, nobody who went out onto the field at Cressy in 1346, of course, knew that they were participating in a Hundred Years' War. Um, but it's, it's very clear following that great English victory, and then, ten years later, the actual capture of the King of France, Philip VI's son, John II, at the Battle of Poitiers by the Black Prince in 1356. It's very clear um, by this stage that, um, that, that the English have... Um, a very, very strong strategic position in relation to France and ought to be able to force a very, very effective and very advantageous peace. Now, there's a long, long debate among historians as to why it was that um, with that great diplomatic lever available to him, the captivity of the King of France, why it was that Edward III could not secure what most historians think he had set out to do at the beginning of the war in 1337. That is, to win full sovereign control of his ancestral lands in France, and specifically full rights of, um, of sovereignty in the Duchy of Aquitaine. It's a long convention that says that the Hundred Years' War was about a fight over the Duchy of Aquitaine. But my argument is that by 1360, by the time that this diplomacy comes together to, to form uh, a new set of peace treaties, um, first at Bretigny and then at Calais in 1360, Edward has already begun to think that he, that he cannot actually give up the wider set of claims that have emerged um, over the, uh, the, uh, the, the previous 20 years and, and draws back from, uh, try, from actually making a final settlement. It's rather typical of Edward III, I think, that he, he was a king who liked to have his cake and eat it, and what he tried to do was to enforce the those elements of the 1360 treaty that were to England's advantage, while holding back on 
confirming those parts of the treaty uh, that were not so much to his advantage. So he tried to get the French to cede the territories that were owed to him under the, un, under the terms of the treaty. He set up his son as Prince of Aquitaine in 1362, which is a way of saying, I am now the sovereign ruler of that territory and I have a right to place my son there as, as prince, as, as, as a sovereign ruler in his own right. And yet at the same time, he was avoiding every demand from Paris that he should give up his residual right to the French throne. So all the way through the 1360s, Edward was playing this game, I think, of saying, um, yes, I'll, I'll try and get the good bits of the, of the treaty, but I will hold on to these wider claims, not necessarily because he thought that he could make them good, not because he really thought by the mid-1360s that he could become King of France, but because this was a right that he had inherited from his mother and he wished to pass it on to the next generation and the generation after that. And the pressure being brought by his adult sons by this stage that he should pass on uncompromised those rights to the next generation is something which I think he felt very, very strongly. So when he died in 1377, do you think on his deathbed he would have looked back and thought, I've, I've done what I set out to achieve. I've, I have set up my family and I have put in place all the measures to, to maintain those, those ancestral points that I want them to be able to succeed to. This is the, the tragedy of Edward III's life and reign, is that uh, he lived rather too long um, and, he, and, and he witnessed in his last declining years um, the withering away of that great uh, dynastic dream of empire that had sustained him through the 1340s, the 1350s and the 1360s. After the reopening of the war with France in 1369, the sons remain very loyal to their father's cause and try their very best to maintain the strategies that have been employed in the, in the earlier war. But the French are now resurgent um, under a new king, Charles V, a very, very able uh, ruler, um, the French uh, adopt a new military strategy which is much more effective in countering the, uh, the, uh, the, both the English occupation of parts of France and the occasional camp English campaigns that are sent into France. And gradually the English positions in France wither away during the the, the 1370s. By the time that Edward III dies in 1377, English control in fact is confined very largely to, uh, to a narrow strip of um, coastal territory in Aquitaine and to his great acquisition of the town of Calais, which he had captured in 1347 after the Battle of Crecy. Calais becomes, as it were, kind of engraved on Edward III's heart, rather like it was on the monarch who eventually lost it, uh, Mary I, because it becomes the great symbol, in a sense, of the English, of the one-time English success in France. So by 1377, the, the dream of, of taking over large parts of France has certainly dwindled. Even more so, of course, the prospect that Edward's sons would be able then to benefit from this great empire has also very, very sadly dwindled. 
1377, by the time that the king himself died, he's already lost his two eldest sons, Edward the Black Prince and Prince Lionel, both predeceased him. And John of Gaunt is really the person who is mostly in charge in England by the time that, uh, that, 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 that Edward dies. Um, John of Gaunt and his younger brother Edmund are increasingly preoccupied with the idea that they might um, pursue dynastic rights in the Kingdom of Castile, where they they marry the two co-heiresses to the to the throne of Castile and are, and are looking for a way of actually channeling the Hundred Years' War more into Spain um, and, and pursuing rights there. But the whole thing is really crumbling by this by this time. Scotland is a is a lost cause so far as England is concerned. Scotland now under Robert II has reasserted itself as an independent kingdom. There's no prospect of of English sovereignty there, of, or of a, of a Plantagenet prince becoming king of Scotland. So it's all it's all collapsed by the time that Edward that Edward dies. And there are even hints that all of this has created some degree of pressure within the royal family, such as to challenge that uncompromised sense of political unity that had been there uh, up at least until 1369. So it's a sad end, really, to that to that dream. <clears throat> okay, so, um, so, so maybe Edward would judge his reign as a failure on his deathbed, maybe. As, a, as his biographer, how do you judge his reign? Do you, have, you, have you made any value judgments about his success or otherwise in his 50 years on the throne? Well, I think longevity is, is a remarkable aspect of Edward's achievement, really, to have, to have remained on the throne of England for just over 50 years in a century that saw the forced deposition of two other English kings, Edward II and Richard II, is very striking. It, what is even more striking is that those 50 years were years of, of extraordinary political peace and stability within England. There is virtually no significant um, uh, armed uprising and very little even by way of um, direct political challenge to the king over that period. Edward's worst time really in this respect had been at the beginning of the Hundred Years' War where he had pushed the country to the limits of tolerance in terms of the extraordinarily high taxes that he had demanded in order to, to pay his allies on the, on the continent. Um, and there had, there had been grave disquiet in England in 1340 and 1341 about the nature of the king's regime. But after that point, in fact, um, an extraordinary stability sets in. That stability, I think, is actually, is actually heightened rather than challenged by the, by the greatest social challenge of the whole reign, which is the Black Death of 1348 to 9. A third or more of the population dies in the course of, of, of one year. We might suppose that some form of social anarchy would have prevailed uh, after this. But in fact, for better or worse, Edward draws together with uh, landed society, the proprietary classes, to, um, to re-establish an extraordinary kind of social stability uh, in England in the years after the, after the plague. 
Um, clearly, there were some. There were people who who suffered as a consequence of this. And the third quarter of the 14th century is a is is not altogether a happy period in terms of the social conditions of the of those um, groups of peasants, particularly who had who had managed to survive the, uh, the the plague. They were hard times for for people, but. Social stability was maintained. Um, there's a very, very effective regime running the country through the 1350s and 1360s that is that is promoting industry, promoting trade, promoting the wealth of the realm. And these are the sorts of things that are in fact remembered about Edward in the following two centuries after after his death. It's interesting that through the 15th and on into the 16th centuries, he's not just remembered as a great warrior king. He's also remembered as a king who brought peace and prosperity to the Kingdom of England. And the Tudors in particular admired him greatly for, for that. Okay, last question. Um, so you've, you've studied his life. Um, in, in depth. Um, is there one moment that you would particularly like to have been able to sit in on and to see what he's actually doing? So if there was one moment when I would really like to have been there to see what was going on and to understand the thought processes behind Edward's world and his ambitions and his achievements, it's the moment when he has returned to England after the great victories of Cressy and Calais in 1347 and sets about celebrating his recent achievements in such a way as quite obviously to, um, to, to, to demonstrate and advertise to his subjects at home um, the great advantages and the, and the great um, beneficence of his, of his regime. Um, and he does this through a, a series of extraordinarily flamboyant um, tournaments that are celebrated right through the winter of 1347 into 1348. And these culminate in what we believe to be, in effect, the establishment of the Order of the Garter at a tournament held at Windsor Castle uh, in the summer of 1348. This was probably the, the moment at which Edward incepted the Order of the Garter, though it had its first formal meeting then on St George's Day in the following year in 1349. And the reason why I would have liked to be there, of course, is, is in order to try to establish what this garter was meant to uh, symbolise. Why adopt the garter as um, the great symbol of Edward's new order of chivalry. What did it, what did it mean? We can set aside the Tudor fanciful recreation of this of this scene um, as, uh, as so much nonsense really the idea that it was a that it was a lady's garter that fell from the leg of the uh, the Countess of Salisbury at a great at a great ball and was picked up by the by the king um, is, is so much nonsense the garter is clearly the representation of a, of a medieval sword belt so, so it is. It is in fact, although although it can be worn upon the leg, it actually has a military connotation to it. And I think the nearest that we can get to the idea of the of the Order of the Garter really is that sense of Edward binding the political elite together by 
uh, a cordon, if you like, by some kind of a, of a garter or a belt, wound around the great military leaders of the day, joining them all together in celebration of his recent military events, but also, of course, um, in a common obligation to the great enterprises of the state. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Professor Mark Ormerod of York University. His piece on Edward III, The Family Man, is in the November issue of BBC History magazine. His biography, Edward III, is published now by Yale University Press. Next, we have a chat with Sam Willis, a naval and maritime historian whose latest book, The Glorious First of June, has just been published. The eponymous battle of the book's title was fought between Britain and France in 1794. The first question I asked was, why does this battle matter? The battle's unique because you need to understand the point in time at which it was fought. It was fought on the 1st of June 1794. So that was after the French revolutionaries had executed their king, Louis XVI, and they'd set up a young republic. And this republic was very much tottering at the time. Um, A lot of people within France were very unhappy with the way things were going. And there was, there was a very intense and violent civil war. Uh, and at the same time, um, France's external boundaries were being pressured by the first coalition uh, led by Britain and Russia, and Prussia and Portugal, who were fighting to get rid of the young republic, essentially. France was then ruled by this political faction known as the Jacobins, um, which was led by Maximilien Robespierre. And he instigated something called the Reign of Terror as an attempt to guarantee the survival of the, first, of, of, the, of, of the Republic. And it was exactly at this time, at the very height of the Reign of Terror, that the British and the French fleets met in mid-Atlantic. And 
it's, that's quite interesting, isn't it? Because the reign of terror, we, we associate with people's heads being chopped off in France. But actually, there was a naval action fought by France when all that was going on, which, which seems quite bizarre in a way. One of the interesting things about the French Revolution is that it affected different parts of France differently and at different times. And what you need to do is... is acknowledge the sea as a location in its own right. So the revolution was different in Paris as it was different in Toulon and it was different in Brest and it was also different at sea. And there was also a very significant maritime aspect to the survival of the French Revolution because Britain had a very powerful navy and we could bring a lot of military and economic pressure to the Young Republic in an attempt to weaken it to allow the armies to then conquer on land a sort of symbiosis between land power and sea power. But the sea was very much a crucial element of this early war against the Young Republic. And, and particularly in this case, in this battle, it was over a, a convoy which was coming from America to bring supplies to this embattled French Republic. That's correct, isn't That's it? right. One of the problems that the Young Republic had is that by sucking all of the manpower from the farms to fight in their army and their navies. They then couldn't produce the necessary food to keep the population going. What they had to do at this stage, particularly after a number of bad harvests, was to import flour. Um, Bread was the key thing that was going to keep the revolution alive, essentially. They didn't have potatoes like England. Flour and bread was very much the staple of their diet. So what Robespierre needed to do was to import vast quantities, um, thousands upon thousands. I think the convoy in the end had 67,000 barrels of flour. They had to import this flour from somewhere else, and the place they went to get it was America. Now, remember that the French have just had their revolution, but they were also um, working on an example which had happened not far before, and that was the American Revolution. So the Americans were, to a certain extent, sympathetic of the plight of the French, and they were prepared to defy Britain's stance against the revolution to supply the French with the flour that they needed. So France was starving. They had secured a vast convoy of foodstuffs, principally flour, um, which was going to come across from the eastern seaboard of America. Was this... American altruism, or had the French got the resources to pay for this? They had resources. They had an awful lot of money um, with which to do so. Okay. So um, the money wasn't a problem. Um, but the, the, the American response to the revolution was very much um, a split two ways. They did provide the flour, but politically it became a real hot potato in America, and it was, uh, America became uh, very fiercely split between those who supported the French Revolution and those who did not. And we're talking about a convoy. I mean, the word convoy is, in my mind, is, is, is particularly associated with the Second World War, you know, Atlantic convoys. Is there any, any link at all between the sort of convoy that we're talking about and, and those convoys that were going across in the Second World War? Well, they were carrying different things, but essentially, um, yes, they are the same. The convoy was, was very important to the continuation of the war, whoever was doing it at whatever time. It was also guarded, as it was in the Second World War, and it was also attacked, as it was in the Second World War. Um, So those very basic factors were all the same. Um, This particular convoy, the British knew, was politically significant. Robespierre, at the time, needed to demonstrate that he could look after his people and he was, in essence, going to be buying their loyalty with flour. The British understood that 
as well. And so both countries poured their naval resources into securing or trying to capture the convoy. Um, now, one of the important points about this battle, of course, is that the convoy finally got through. The French secured their aim. The Navy had done its job. It had lost seven ships, granted, but it had fought very bravely. Um, the British, what they really wanted was the convoy. They knew that it would politically weaken Robespierre and it would harm the French Revolution and their ability to carry on fighting on land. But they weren't able to capture it, and what they got was a very unwieldy naval battle, um, which came with an awful lot of complications, um, not least the expense of having to repair their own fleet. So the really interesting aspect about this battle is it was, it was celebrated in England, but it was also celebrated in France, and it was celebrated in America, who were supporting the French cause. So how did the convoy get through then? Because presumably there was a lot of ships involved. Did the French naval escort have some sort of heist that, that made them uh, you know, fight the battle away from the convoy? Is that how it panned out? You need to think about the Atlantic in, in almost in terms of like a desert. You think of it as a, as a kind of a vast empty space, but actually there are people travelling around. There are, there are geographical areas which, where, where, where people tend to gather. And it's very much the same in the Atlantic. There were um, fishing boats travelling forward and back. A, a convoy could very much expand and its ships could go ahead of it, scanning the seas in front of it. So it would cover actually a very large area of sea. And the, the rumour of it leaving America fled in front of it like a blast of hot air. So the British knew it was at sea and they had a rough idea of where it was going to land. Um, in the end, they missed it by very little. They, they fought an action against the French on the 29th of May, just before the main action on the 1st of June. But the convoy then passed through that exact location the next day. So they were very close to capturing the convoy, but in the end they missed it because they were guided away from the location of the convoy's arrival by the French fleet. OK, so whoever was in charge of the French fleet there did a, did a, a particularly good job then? Yes, he knew exactly where the convoy was coming and when. He also knew where the British were. And for the first two days of action, the, the, the 1st of June, is, it's slightly misleading. It, it sounds like it was fought on one day. It was actually fought over five days of intermittent contact. And when the French fleet met the British fleet at the beginning on the 28th of May, the French immediately started to draw the British away from the location of the convoy's arrival. So that was very, very cleverly done by the French commander. And was, was he acting on orders to do that? Was he the decoy or, or, or was he just, you know, that was his idea? And, and... His main order was to guarantee the survival of the convoy. Right. He was also instructed to guarantee the survival of his own fleet, but it was very much a lesser consideration. And he essentially had to sacrifice his men and his ships to, to guarantee the survival of the convoy. And were the, were the British then sucked in by this deceit? Did the, would they not have expected some sort of decoy? Well, they were a bit hot-headed, you see. Um, this is the first battle of the Revolutionary Wars. And I think, having said that, even in, in any battle, if a French cap an English captain saw a French ship, he would go after the French he would go after the French ship, regardless of a merchantman next door. There was glory there. It was their whole purpose. These were men who were trained to fight in ships that were built to fight. That was their goal. So there's a bit of a, a dichotomy between the political goal which would have favoured them securing the convoy, and what was actually going through the minds of the British sailors who saw their enemy and they wanted to fight their enemy. So, in essence, Villeneuve's job was, was rather easy. All he had to do was to give the Brits a wave and then sail off, and he knew they would come after him, which they did. 
So, so we, we get to this point where there's the, the British and the French navies arranged against each other, and the convoys just sneaking along out of view. Is, is that is that basically it's how exactly it's what's happening? Yes, I mean the the the, French, the, the, uh, the French are luring the British away uh, from the location of the convoy. The convoy is maybe a day, a day and a half um, behind, just just beyond the horizon. Um, perhaps it's scouts just coming across the horizon. They would certainly have been able to hear the report of the guns. And so they're sneaking underneath the battle side and trying to get into Brest without being spotted. And would the, would the British hope and expectation have been that they would defeat the Navy and then the convoy would be easy pickings? Yes, essentially. As, as soon, I mean, once, once they had removed uh, the French fleet from the equation, they would have then been able to set up a almost like a net of British warships around Brest or Rochefort, wherever they thought that the convoy was going to land, um, and then snatch it up, essentially, yes. Could they therefore not have gone after the, the French naval ships? Could they have stayed where they are and, and, and hung around away from the convoy, or would they have then found themselves under attack and in a, in a perilous well, position? It's slightly more complicated, because you have Howe, Admiral Howe, commander of a large British fleet. Then you have George Montague, commander of a small British division. Howe had been blockading Brest, but was then blown off station by some very poor weather. When he came back, he found the French fleet had gone. The problem he now faced is that Montague, in a small division, could be threatened, beaten, taken by this much, much larger French fleet. Which had come out of Brest. Which had come out of Brest. So Howe was trying to find the convoy. He was also trying to protect Montague, who was also trying to find the convoy. Right. And so there were a lot of balls in the air, and um, they all fell down in, in essentially a random way. I mean, the, the battle could have gone in, in so many other different directions at so many other times. Okay. And, the, and when the battle actually took place, it was basically in the middle of the sea. There was nowhere near... It, it was just in the middle of the sea. It was in, literally in the middle of the sea, the middle of the Atlantic, which is why it is called the Glorious First of June. It's named for its date rather than its location, like Cape Trafalgar or the Battle of the Nile or Cape St Vincent. And the battle's unique because of that. So they were a very, very long way away from um, any help, any support. A lot of... Uh, the interest in the battle afterwards was how the ships actually got back because they were so far away from their, their, um, their naval bases. And did that make it a different sort of battle to how it would have been if there had been land in sight? Perhaps. I mean, a, a lot, lot more work needs to be done on this. I've, I have a theory that people fought very differently in different locations around the world. Um, if you imagine you were in charge of a fleet in the East Indies... Um, and you had some very poor, unreliable repair facilities, and you didn't have very good access to rope, to canvas, to wood, to repair your ships, you were less likely to commit into a full-scale battle. But the battles that were fought in and around the Channel, in and around repair facilities in Portsmouth or Plymouth or in the Thames in Chatham, the British certainly were much more prepared to utterly commit themselves in battle than they were in other locations, other more distant locations. So and this battle certainly ticks the boxes for that, and um, you've got a great deal of resolve from the British fleet uh, to attack and to destroy the French, but also you've got this extraordinary resolve from the French fleet to attack the British and defend their own ships, and this is why the glorious 1st of June is unique because it was known as the hardest fought battle of the Age of Sail. Contemporaries generally agreed 
uh, agreed that. One of the interesting things to realise is that in France, the French fleet was not being compared to the British fleet. It was rather the Brest fleet was being compared with the Toulon fleet. A matter of months before, the Toulon fleet had surrendered. The entire fleet had surrendered without a shot being fired to Admiral Hood. That was the most disgraceful uh, thing to happen in, in the entirety of French naval history. And so the Brest fleet now had to demonstrate the pride in their own navy that they felt, essentially, to demonstrate that they were not as bad as the Toulon fleet and that they could fight if asked. On top of that, we have a representative from the Committee of Public Safety, this political body that, that ran France during the Reign of Terror. He was actually aboard the French flagship. His name was Jean-Bon Saint-André. Now, Jean-Bon was there to essentially whip the French into a frenzy, to, to ensure that they did fight for the Republic. It was all very much politically motivated. Um, so, with Jean-Bon there, the, the unique political situation of the Reign of Terror, the history of the Toulon fleet having surrendered, the French were very, very much up for the fight. And they also didn't have the baggage they had um, from later on in the wars. This was the first battle of a series of battles which ended in Trafalgar. So we have the glorious 1st of June, and then after that we have Cape St. Vincent, Camperdown, Copenhagen, the Nile, and the Battle of Trafalgar. But by the end of that period, the French had baggage. They knew they were beaten. They had been beaten before. They were beaten regularly. They knew how good the Brits were. But this was the first battle of the war in 1794. It was the first battle in 12 years. There hadn't been a, a, a real dust-up between the British and the French since the end of the American War of Independence in 1782. So in some respects, both sides were, were desperate to make a point. They were desperate to prove that they could do what they'd been taught that they could do. Hence, it was, it was, it was a formidable clash, and it's, one, it's a battle that would have a much better reputation than it does if Nelson hadn't have gone on to achieve what he did. But you need to understand Nelson's later achievements in the shadow of the glorious 1st of June. He didn't do what he did without the burden of expectation. And the glorious 1st of June provided that burden of expectation. It teed the Royal Navy up to perform again and again and again throughout the war. When that makes it a, a truly remarkable, remarkable achievement. Right. So when the, actual, when the battle actually takes place over the course of several days, the, the, the 1st of June is the, is the apogee of it, is the, is the climax to it. So who's, who's arranged against each other? You've got Howe and... Uh, did Montague's forces arrive at the battle as well? Or? No, um, Montague had been sent home. Right, OK. So well, his so orders are out. Yeah, so you've got so the, Howe's in charge of the British yeah. fleet. And who's in charge of the French fleet? Villeray. OK. And do we have any idea about the numbers? Was it a roughly equal battle? Or? Yeah, it was exactly equal. It was extraordinarily um, lucky that it was equal. The, 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 the British had Montague around. He was now on his way home. But the French also had two or three other squadrons which could have arrived, but for, for other circumstances. Um, in the end, it was, it was the, the, the fleets were matched 27 ships to 27 ships. And what was the, how would you assess the quality of the two sides? Because presumably the, the French Navy must have suffered all sorts of travails during the, during the Reign of Terror and the, you know, the, 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 the immense changes that happened in the French Revolution. So w w were the French rubbish and the British brilliant? <laughs> um, there, are, there are two sides to this. The, the first and most important point is that Traditionally, the French officer corps was made up 
of aristocrats who were now no longer welcome in the French Navy. Many had been executed, many had simply fled. Some survived, and they still fought, but generally speaking, the officer corps of the French Navy came from people who had not got the necessary experience of fleet warfare or experience to compare with the British. So that's one important side of it. Um, the French also had significant trouble raising the requisite manpower for their ships. The British had a different manning system, which allowed them to generate more skilled sailors than the French Navy. On the other hand, of course, we've got the British, and many people have already, always assumed, I suspect, that the British fleet was well-manned in comparison to the French, who was poorly manned. Um, but remember, this was the first fleet battle for 12 years. A lot of people who had fought in the previous war had left the Navy. Some, of course, had died before. And the British fleet was manned by a lot of sailors who had neither experience of, 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 of sailing warfare or even of the sea. Howe's fleet was very much the second major strategic commitment by Britain. The first had been Hood in the Mediterranean, and he had taken all of the really good sailors and really good ships. So it wasn't quite as black and white as you might think. In fact, we know that the British fleet was, British fleet was seriously undermanned. Um, the first and second rates, the, the, the largest ships with around 100 guns on three decks in the British fleet, in total they were 760 men short. The 74 gunners, two-decked ships of 74 guns, which formed the backbone of the British fleet, were 1,760 men short, which is a significant amount. And then you've got to realise that the men who were actually on the ships, many of them were soldiers, many of them were new to the sea. So the British fleet was also badly manned. And that makes us think very differently about the reasons for victory. And I'm, you know, it's something we're still, we're still working on because in the end of it, the, the, the British won in spite of being undermanned. They didn't win because the French were undermanned. But they, but they won you know, with, with, with gusto, didn't they? They won with, with, you know, and, and took a lot of French ships and killed a lot of French They did, sailors. but they didn't do it easily. Right. So what's, what's your view? Why, why, why did it come back? Was it because Howe had superior tactics? Were the British ships better? Or there must have been, was it just luck? Um, I think it was a mixture of all of those things. One of the most important things is to do with the design of the ships. Um, French ships were generally bigger than British ships, rate for rate. That means if you compare a French 74-gunner with a British 74-gunner, the French ship would be larger. The same with first rates. But the British ships were stouter. They were shorter. They were thicker. They were stronger. They were built and designed with fleet battle in mind. Were they built with better wood? Thicker wood. Right. The, the sides were simply thicker. The quality of the wood also may have had something to do with it. It certainly was, was, a, was a factor later on in the 18th century when we fought the Americans. Uh, what that meant is that a cannonball that hit a French ship caused more damage than a cannonball hitting a British ship. And if you look at the damage reports of the British ships, it's extraordinary how many cannonballs were actually stuck in the hulls of the British ships. The point is they didn't go through the hulls. Um, it still meant that they would break off splinters and you could injure the crew that way. Um, but if you look at a lot of the images made of the French ships that were captured and brought back to England, they've got huge holes in them. I mean, the, the, the British 
gunfire just simply blew holes in the French fleet, French ships a lot of the time. And the type of guns they used is an important aspect of that. The British had a, a, a gun called a carronade, which was a short cannon designed specifically to be used over a short distance. It was immensely powerful, and the French simply didn't have them. So that was a, a very big advantage in close action. Um, another important point, I think, is at the level of junior officer, rather than thinking about it in terms of commands and in terms of captains, in terms of the people who were in charge of gun crews on the middle decks. Um, remember that a lot of the French junior officers were new, just as their senior officers were new. And it was in the ability to cope with the carnage once it began that I think the British really excelled. Um, they had systems of coping with, uh, with, with damage, they had systems of coping with casualties, which from what we, we can read of the French accounts, the French were simply not able to match. So it was the ability to kind of maintain fire, to kind of keep on going and just to keep on firing in spite of the damage that was being caused. At that, the British definitely excelled. Okay. You, you, you mentioned earlier about the, uh, how there was a long run of battles subsequent to this, which yeah. the British um, did well in. Um, and obviously leading up to, to, to Trafalgar. Nelson wasn't here, was he? Nelson wasn't at the Battle of the Glorious First of June. No. But what I'm getting at is, were, were lessons learnt from this battle that, that Nelson and his, and his, and his uh, fellow captains and admirals took on board for these later battles? Uh, and yes. Uh, another... It, it's quite a complicated picture, though. One of the things to realise is that how at the glorious 1st of June, deliberately broke the enemy line for the very first time in the 18th century. It had been done before in the 17th century, but how was the first person to do it in these series of wars? And there were lessons there for the British. The one lesson being that no one ever tried doing what he did again. (laughs) They did it differently. So in some respects, how was successful in spite of the tactics he used? Um, but naval tactics is a, it's a very complicated subject and tactics were selected for a given enemy in a given situation by a certain commander. They weren't black and white. You didn't always do one thing. It very much de- depended on, on, on the situation and the appearance of the enemy at the time. The one lesson it did teach people, which is very important, is that if you could engage the French close and you could keep them there, in the end, they would stop firing before the British. Right. And that is a simple but very powerful lesson for what happened later on in the century. The British sailors knew as long as they could keep going, they would win. And naval warfare, a lot of the time, was simply down to endurance. Um... And it comes back to this question of expectation. You see, say when the Battle of St Vincent was fought in 97 or Trafalgar in 1805, the British sailors knew that other British sailors before them had endured and they had carried on and they had fought until the French stopped firing. And that essentially gave a sort of burden on them to do exactly the same sort of thing. Um, So it's a question of seamanship a question of courage and a question of endurance i think all of those things were very important and the glorious first of june taught the british that they were 
in essence, better than the French. Okay. Just wrapping the story up then, the, the consequence is that everyone thinks they've won in a, yeah. in a curious way. So what, 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 how, what, what, are, what is the aftermath of this? What's the upshot? Does, does the battle have any, have any particular consequences? Um, yes, but not the consequences you'd expect. The, the, the British took home maybe three or 4,000 French prisoners who all had typhus, which then spread to the British fleet which then meant that the British fleet couldn't go to sea for six or eight months after the battle was fought. So actually, the battle crippled British sea power in an interesting way. In France, the impact is very interesting. The political enemies of Robespierre used it as evidence to argue that the Republic was now relatively secure. It had the military tools it needed to survive. At the same time that the the battle at sea was fought, France was winning battles on land. They were quelling the civil unrest in the country. The situation which had led to the reign of terror in 1793 had passed. Now, the Toulon fleet had shamefully surrendered in 1793, but the Brest fleet had demonstrated that they could do what was required if necessary, they could defend themselves at least from British attacks at sea. Now that was very important because that led to a new stage in the history of the Republic. Um, Six weeks or so after the glorious 1st of June was the Thermidorian coup in August when Robespierre was finally brought to his knees and he was executed. And that led to a change in the political makeup of France. It led to Um, a much less extreme leadership under a political group known as the Directory. In some respects, therefore, the survival of the grain convoy and the way that the French fought as well as they did uh, helped the revolution survive. Um, A lot of historians have... um, blamed Howe for not making it the victory that it could have been. There were several opportunities over three days of combat where he could have captured more French ships. But I personally think it's time that we should be grateful that he did not. Um, Because the battle was fought in the way that it was fought, the French Revolution actually survived. And it's left a legacy of... um, boundless possibility. It's proof that a new and better world can always exist. The French Revolution is generally accepted as a good thing. The fact that the British didn't bring it to its knees is is, is not necessarily a bad thing, and I think it's something that actually should be celebrated. Okay, so in conclusion, you think that the the Battle of the Glorious First of June is one that we don't know much about, and we should know more about, and we should recognise its importance? Yes, it's... um, it, it desperately deserves to be recognised as the first of this series of battles, which then eventually led to uh, the defeat of Napoleon so many years later. But it's also such a fine example of the complexities of sea power. And it was fought in 1794, but we were again fighting in 1797 and then again in 98, in 1801. Um, one single naval battle didn't necessarily end a war. It only changed the wars in certain ways, ways that were only just starting to understand and it's one of those battles that opens so many avenues of questions and it really helps our understanding of sea power and the way that sea power can influence history okay one question i should have asked actually the glorious bit of this battle you've talked about why it's called the first of june because it was geographically that was the best name for it 
Why glorious? Just because Britain won? It, it was called glorious by um, journalists and poets. Right. There had been several significant land victories, and everyone was desperate for a naval victory. And when it finally arrived, artists, poets and journalists f- literally fell on it. And they, they spun it in, a, in, a, in an extraordinary way. Hence we have this, this concept of gloriousness. I mean, glorious is certainly not something that a sailor would describe the battle as. He would say it was painful or hot or cold or noisy. Not glorious. I mean, glorious doesn't capture the difficulty of walking down a deck with your legs broken by cannon shot. Um, it's a word that's been put onto the battle by politicians, the kind of word that can turn vinegar into claret. You need to strip this concept of gloriousness away to understand the battle. But then you've got to put it back on once you've understood the nuts and bolts of the battle, because the way that the battle was understood and it was told about in politics, through art, through journalism, is an integral part of the tale of the story itself and the way that it, it generated this history. And at the time, it was, it was, it was huge news. It really was. Um, and in essence, it's, it's a naval legend that has been forgotten, um, which is why I think now's the right time to remind everyone of what happened on the 1st of June. That was Sam Willis. The glorious 1st of June is published now by Quercus. It's the third in his Hearts of Oak trilogy, with the two preceding titles being The Fighting Temeraire and The Admiral Benbow. Indeed, you can read a review of The Admiral Benbow in the book section of our website at historyextra.com. Talking of books, you can see the question and answer session resulting from our first reader book club on our website. Go to historyextra.com slash our backs to the wall and you can read professor david stevenson of the lse answering questions posed by readers in response to his recent first world war book entitled with our backs to the wall you'll also find details of how to become a member of a book club there too and of course elsewhere on the site there's also our weekly friday history quiz galleries of historic images regular roundups of historic news stories and much more so hopefully worth a visit That's it for this week. Next week, I'll be exploring medieval royal manuscript libraries, which is actually much more interesting than perhaps I've just made it sound. I hope you'll tune in. between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.